You may be thinking, wait a minute, that's the same text we had last week. And it is. I hate to take Mother's Day to talk about my own problems. But for those of you who haven't been with us long, you don't know about the curse. The curse of Mother's Day, in which for like a good seven, eight years, every year, just by luck of the draw or a divine sense of humor, I would land in whatever book we were studying on the most inappropriate texts. Culminating with, we were in Revelation 3, and we were on the text of, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who claims to be a prophet, but, but seduces many into sexual immorality, and I'll throw her children on a sickbed. Happy Mother's Day! And I thought the spell had been broken, and then I started this Acts study last week. And if you haven't looked at verses 18 and 19, you don't know why I haven't moved ahead. But I looked at it, and I said, not today, Satan. Not happening. And then one of you, he's not here today, but one of you said to me, wait a minute, Pastor Zach, I have a question. Because at the end of this text, in verse 11, the disciples are gazing intently up into the sky with this sense of expectation. And these two angels come and sort of mildly rebuke them for it. What are you doing staring up in the sky? He's coming back, but in the meantime, there's work to do. And he said, wait a minute, why, why were they rebuked? Because aren't we told to focus on things above? Aren't we told to keep our, an eye on, on the sky? Aren't we, aren't we told to do exactly what they were doing? And I said, thank you for the out. Let's take a little you know, side detour and talk about that on Mother's Day. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, there's a, a story that, that Martin Luther, when he was kind of the spiritual father and elder statesman uh, for many, many who had come into his reformation. He was, he was teaching and, and he was trying to lead a particular young student who had been a superstar monk and, and had a high opinion of his own piety. He was trying to help him to understand how lowly we all are before God. And so he said to the young man, he said, listen, if you can do something for me, if you can go back to your room tonight Pray the Lord's Prayer and pray it in such a way that you focus entirely on nothing but the words of the prayer. And not get distracted, not, not ever think of anything else, just focus on Christ's words that He taught us. And you come back, you can honestly tell me you did that. I will give you a brand new horse and carriage. Which sounds like a weird prize, but remember, this is a, a new monk out of the monastery now no longer a monk and every day there's new former nuns arriving they're all wanting to get married you got to have a cool car right so he said i can do it i can do it brother luther he went back to his room and tried and tried and tried he's like there's only five basic petitions in the lord's prayer and he could not do it the next day downcast luther said well were you able to accomplish it he said no as much as i tried whenever i tried to focus on the words of christ I thought about the horse and carriage. That brings me to a text in Colossians that I think is kind of the, the counterbalance, the yin to the yang of that passage in Acts 1 and kind of the heart of the question I was asked. What does it mean for us to focus on things above if it doesn't mean the, to do just what the disciples were doing? We read in Colossians 3. I'll give you a second to find that. Way near the end, like right there. Colossians 3, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We read these words. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, a reference to the second coming, then you will also appear with him in glory. So here, Paul ties together this second coming the angels were talking about and the notion of focusing on things above. And in verse 1 there, I have to stop after one word, and I know that doesn't bode well for your lunch plans, but it says in most translations, if, if then you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things above. It makes it sound open-ended. Like he's writing to people, and who knows if they are or not. And, and there's something going on in the Greek here that we actually don't have easily uh, translatable in the English, and it's called a first-class conditional, which means it's an if-then statement, but it expects a particular answer. In this case, yes. I'm writing to people who are. I'm writing to people who have been raised with Christ. It'd be almost like if I said, well, you want to come with us, don't you? I'm asking a question, but it's a conditional that expects the yes answer. It's almost somewhere between if and since. Since you have been raised with Christ. If you have been, this is how you ought to act. If you're really my dad, you should let me do this, right? That kind of an if-then situation. And he's reminding them that they're not on the fence, that they have been saved. And once you turn on the light here, you can't go back into the darkness. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Those two commands, seek the things above, set your mind on things above, on heavenly things, those are parallel. And both of these commands are in what's called a continuous present tense. Meaning we could, we could translate that, keep on setting your mind on things above. Keep on seeking things above. Keep on focusing more and more on heavenly things. The great Bishop Lightfoot says, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. And it's too bad the disciples didn't have that quote or this passage at their disposal when those angels were giving them a hard time. They could have said, yeah, cool off, buddy, calm down. We're just setting our minds on things above. We are looking up at heavenly things, thinking about heavenly things. Now, we have to be careful with a passage like this to remember the context and to look at what is said and what is not because you can actually accidentally interpret this backwards in a, in a way where you're aligning yourself with the very thing Paul is trying to refute here, which is Gnosticism. The notion that heaven is good and earth is bad. Why? Because it's earth. Because it's physical. Because there's dirt and stuff. Spirits are good. Bodies are bad. That's Gnosticism. That's not Christianity. That's Plato. That's not Paul. That's certainly not what Jesus taught. That's not what we see here. We're not, we're not looking at this through the lens of that's reality. This is a shadow, an illusory existence. We really want to get to the ethereal rather than the earthly. That's not a biblical view. I remember when I was in an American Baptist youth group uh, in, the, in the early 90s, there was a, a band, it was a family, and they were also like a rock band, and they would go around to all the ABC youth events and sing, and their, their most popular song was, Heaven is the Real World. And I remember thinking something's weird about that back then, but I didn't have the categories it's because it's Gnostic. This is the real world. To think it's not is a cop-out. In fact, we see at the end that rather than God saying, why don't you just all come up to heaven and stay here forever, at the end of the book of Revelation, 
Heaven comes to earth. And God dwells amongst his people forever. And heaven and earth kind of become one on the new earth. This life is not batting practice for the real thing. This is the real thing. And it matters. And so we must engage with the earth. It's not good enough to say, well, we're the church. Close the doors. Batten down the hatches. Wait it out. Be spiritual. Think about heavenly things. No, we're rooted in heavenly things and engaging the world around us. We also want to make sure we avoid the the trap of thinking that heavenly things are like stuff that's in heaven. I've actually even seen studies that are written with this point of view. What are the heavenly things? Well, let's look at what the Bible says is in heaven. We've got a throne. God sits on a throne, so we'll talk about that a while. Uh, There's those weird living creatures that are like mix-and-match animal situation. We'll talk about that for a while. That's not what we're looking at. This is not speculative. Paul does not want us to sit and daydream what heaven is like endlessly. Not that there's never a time where that's helpful, but that's not what's being commanded here at any rate. This isn't about spiritual escapism wherein we fantasize about the sweet by and by until by and by we arrive. We spend all our time reading these dubious accounts about people who went to heaven and came back and tell us what it's like. No, we keep our eyes on things above, not on earthly things, but that doesn't mean doing what the disciples did and essentially gazing with our our head in the clouds up, 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 and not looking at all the need around us and all the hatred around us and all the people around us who do not know Jesus Christ. Now, when you are facing death, whether your own imminent death or the death of a loved one, it sure can be helpful to read certain passages about heaven and about the promises we have of a resurrection and a new earth or, or the death of a loved one. It can be good to remind yourself that person is reigning with Christ, safe with Christ, at peace. Yes, absolutely, But this passage, again, is about something we should do continually as we think about things above. And Paul has no interest in this sort of idea of a withdrawal from society and from the world at large, where we have our head in the clouds. And i got to say, it doesn't tell us exactly how long they were looking here. When when you read that text, um, here's the ascension. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing intently into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes. You might say, well, obviously it all happens at once, but there's a little room there for there to have been a while where they were like, um, I mean, the disciples, God love them. They haven't got the Holy Spirit yet. They're not always the sharpest tools in the shed. They might have been wandering around for a while like some Pokemon Go thing. Just uh. Finally, the angels arrive and say, what are you doing? This Jesus will come back. Why are you gazing intently into heaven? What can happen is, there's the old Christian cliche, we can become so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. And, and that is not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that we ought to be very concerned with immediate needs here on earth. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and those in prison. Our relationship with our neighbors, our enemies, our friends, the government and those in authority over it. It all matters. All of it matters. What we're reading about here, the command is to have minds that are formed by the resurrection. And when you read about worldly or heavenly in the Bible, in this sense, make sure to keep reading. 
Because whoever's writing will always define what they mean. Worldly doesn't mean physical. Worldly doesn't mean stuff that's down here and heavenly is stuff that's sitting on a cloud playing a spirit harp for all of eternity. If that doesn't sound good to you and you feel guilty about it, don't feel guilty. That's not what you're going to be doing. The blessed hope of the Christian life is you will be raised again. You will be a human person, body and spirit, and you will be able to dwell on earth with Christ, but without sin and suffering forever. And so there are these sort of composite sketches that we see. For example, Galatians 5. You know this one, the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's a description of the sort of heavenly things we ought to set our minds on. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Or Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, set your minds, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is holy, excellent, admirable, praiseworthy, think about such things. Put your minds on things that are worth thinking about because they're rooted in the character of God and the kingdom of God. Or, or as we read, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, sometimes translated the same attitude We pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Not take us out so that we can establish your kingdom somewhere else because it's just too messy here. And yet we often find, I think, the greater temptation is to be so worldly minded, we're of no heavenly good. Right? And that is the carnal Christian paradox. I'm saved, but I'm not living like a new creation at all. I'm not grieved by the fact that I'm not living like a new creation. I'm not being sanctified whatsoever. Scripture knows nothing of such a Christian. We see that the the temptation will always come. We will fall, but we must repent. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the things that tempted our Lord Jesus tempt us. We're not above being tempted by the very things that tempted Christ. The lust of the eyes, materialism, Literally setting your mind on worldly things and pursuing them and mostly just them. Jesus warned in the parable of the sowers about the worries and pleasures of this world. They can overtake you and make it so that you never bear fruit for the kingdom. It's a story about Jack Benny, the old comedian. If you don't, Emerson, you know Jack Benny, right? Oh, buddy. All right, well. We'll fix that. He, he was notoriously like a penny pincher. That was part of the shtick. And uh, one day, he, he supposedly was walking down the street, and a guy came up with a gun and said, Hey, your money or your life? And Benny kind of froze up. And the guy said, Do you hear me? I said, Your money or your life? And he said, Don't rush me. I'm thinking. That's the best joke I've got today, guys. That's it. So savor it. Your money or your life? Jesus says, What good is it to gain the world? And then you lose your soul, lose yourself. If you, if you find your life, you'll lose it. If you, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. The world, though, says, no, whatever you see, that's what you want. Things that are seen, things that are, things that are here and shiny and, and things that are nice. That's what we pursue with all of ourselves. 
the pleasures of the world. The worries then come behind and begin to cripple us and take over every spare moment. The world's bumper sticker is the one that says, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Wins. I don't know what you win, but that's what the bumper sticker says. And we can sub in whoever dies with the most fame, the most accomplishments, the most, most worldly honor, the greatest reputation, the most followers on Twitter. That's the one who wins. Perhaps the Christian... Answer is the bumper sticker that says, don't let the car fool you, my treasure is in heaven. I've seen that on both really nice cars and old clunky jalopies, and it makes sense on both in a different way. But what's so scary and so sad is when we start bringing that kind of thinking in the back door of the church. What God really wants for you is for you to be rich, happy, healthy, wealthy, All of your dreams to come true. The health and wealth gospel, which is no gospel at all. What did Jesus teach? He taught, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. I read that and go, oh, thank goodness I'm not rich. I mean, what's rich? It's not me. Okay, not really. I'm certainly not rich. But what if I had more of a global perspective when I'm thinking about what it means to be rich? What percentage of the world is poorer than me? Looking back historically, what percentage of mankind has struggled more than me? I think about a story that I heard, a pastor who had a missionary and someone from this this impoverished country in South America where the missionary was serving. They came and they stayed in his home for a few days. And it was the first time this woman had actually been outside of her home country, or even her immediate area. And she was wowed by everything, and they were showing her around the house. And then they sat down for dinner, and she looked out the window, and she pointed at the garage and said, who lives in that house? And he said, oh, that's the garage. It's for the car. She said, no, but who lives in there? Is that, is it someone else live there, or is that yours? And they said, no, that's a, what's a garage? It's a house for the car. And she was kind of quiet, and they ate, and they tried to make small talk with her for, for 10, 15 minutes. And finally, she just said, a house for the car. She couldn't fathom it. We cannot put ourselves in the, in the uh, category of, of outside of the dangers of materialism. Just because I'm not rich by whatever standard I've set up. Very few people probably think of themselves as rich. There's always the draw to something more. And you know, people have tried to come in and say, no, no, what Jesus is teaching there, you see, there was, this, there was this gate in the wall in Jerusalem, and it was called the Eye of the Needle, and it was really small, and so that way, you know, an army couldn't rush through. You could go in one at a time, and you could bring a camel in, but you had to take all the baggage off the back. So Jesus is teaching, he wants your bag. No, there's, there's no historical accuracy to that at all. It was made up in the Middle Ages. It just appeared out of nowhere. Jesus is saying... The funniest way I can tell you this is impossible is this goofy image of a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the disciples said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, ah, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. With God, with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you can overcome the hold on you that materialism might have, that the lust of the eyes, the wanting more and more have, and and slowly focus more and more on heavenly things. Jesus taught, seek first the kingdom of God, and all those things you need will be added unto you as well. In fact, I would argue that this is how you can know you're living in the will of God. 
People worry, Am I doing, I'm, I went the wrong way 10 years ago and I'm outside of God's will. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God that the rest may be added unto you? If so, you are in God's will. Seeking Him, seeking His face, being formed by Him, focusing on His will and His ways. As the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. The flesh, again, it's another term we might think, wait a minute, does that mean it's bad that I have a body and I should look forward to when like, my spirit escapes like a, a bird flying out of a cage? No, 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 no. Every time this comes up, it's defined. The definition is given. Flesh, usually in, in modern translations, is translated sin nature because that's what we're talking about. Just before that fruit of the spirit thing, we read, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he doesn't say going for a drive on a Sunday, going to work, spending time with your family, enjoying Mother's Day. Those are all worldly, fleshly things. No, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's always a definition, and we can look at it and say, am I drawn more to the things of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit coming out in my life, or to the things of the flesh, worldly things? In fact, if we read the next verse here in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We have the pride of life as well. The idea of making a great name for yourself and lifting yourself up. Like Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up. Like Herod lifted himself up and let people say, these are the words of a God, not a man. We look at those extreme examples and say, I could never do that. And yet, much of our lives could be boiled down to lifting ourselves up. And throughout, God always frustrates those desires and those attempts amongst his people. And usually in a funny way. Remember right after the flood? Do not stay in one place, but spread out. Fill the earth. Multiply. Let's get this thing going again. First thing they say is, hey, well, I got an idea. What if we stay in one place? Build a tower up to heaven. We'll become great people and make for ourselves a great name. God looks down and says, I think I'll make of you a funny story. And he confuses their language so that they can't understand each other and they have to obey him anyway. Even when we've been born again, there is the temptation there is the, the old vestiges of the old man or the old woman, the temptation side of ourselves to seek after those things that will gratify the flesh, that will never satisfy us, that rather than the living water, which Jesus says, you'll never thirst again. We say, oh, yeah, but what about some, some flat Mountain Dew, just for a minute? Verse 3 here. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. That's common language for what happens at salvation. The old self dies and now a new is born again. Galatians 3.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's such final language. Dead. The old self is dead. Sin in me is dead. And yet... We don't think of it in those terms some of the time. It's, it's still around and it's okay. Like, your dog dies, right? It's either dead or not. Billy Crystal says there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. But, I mean, you know, when it's dead, you don't keep it around. You go and you bury it and you say a few words and you cry, right? 
If the dog came back later, you wouldn't be like, oh, good. No, this is some Stephen King stuff now. Be afraid, right? And yet, we don't treat sin that way. Oh, no, you're dead. Don't come around here. You know, I, we've seen with this, the, the Flint water thing in the past few years just how, how scary it is to have something in the water that is not healthy for you. That you can't see it, but just as many parts per billion. It's dangerous. It's, it's scary. I, when I was in Grand Rapids, occasionally where I lived, uh, there would rain a lot, and there'd be like an overflow at a treatment plant somewhere, and just a little bit of raw sewage would get into the water, and they'd issue a boil advisory. Not a command, just advising you. <laughs> For the next six weeks, boil if you're going to drink the water. I never filled up a glass and went, eh, it looks all right. There's not that much sewage. Right? No, no. I, I didn't even boil it. I left the water running for two weeks and I just got a case of bottled water. That's a, I, we're not going to play around with this. Or I don't know why I was re- reading this text. I was thinking about like 15, 20 years ago. Remember somebody got some chili at a famous fast food restaurant and allegedly found a human finger in it? Did you go get chili from that place the next week? Eh, there's probably not a finger in it. I'm okay. No! No, I'm not going to drink this water. I'm not going to eat this chili. And yet, for whatever reason, I'm not going to treat sin that deadly serious. I'm not going to put it to death. I'm just going to I'm going to manage it. I got it under control. I've got willpower. Think about that. The power of my will. Same will, by the way, that led me astray to begin with and caused me to rebel and willfully against my savior. Now I'm going to trust it. I need to trust the new heart and the Holy Spirit that's been given to me, not my ability to be strong and condition myself and establish good habits and make good choices all out of my gut or my heart, which, by the way, the heart of man is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? All that stuff, just before this, in chapter 2, Paul calls it self-made religion. It's got no power to save. It can look good, but it can't save you. Forget the willpower. Take the will out of there and replace it with spirit. The power of the spirit will help you to think on earthly, or rather heavenly things, not on things of the earth. Look where self-made religion has gotten us. To the point where even within many churches, there's no such thing as sin. We're following along behind the world going, all right, we'll do that, all right, we'll compromise here. We need to follow the spirit and the word. This is how sanctification works. This morning, I had my, my phone out. It's a smartphone, but I got it at Walmart, so it's not great. And uh, I, I pay for data, so I try not to use data. I use Wi-Fi. And I'm going, why won't this work? Why? And, and then I went over to my Wi-Fi, and it showed our network, and it said, saved. I said, it doesn't help me. I need it to be connected, not just saved. And then I went, ooh. And I wrote something down real quick. We're walking around going, I'm saved. doesn't matter. Yeah, but are you connected? Are you in the Spirit? Are you living your life with your mindset on heavenly things? Or have you just kind of saved for later the fact that you belong to Jesus? Not in your life right now, of course, but later. This is sanctification. It's a lifelong thing. After we've been justified and God looks at us and declares us righteous with the righteousness of Christ, then begins the slog where we push through, put to death all that is of the old Adam or Eve in us and more and more cleave to the new, the new self and to Christ himself. Many people, though, are kind of stuck in this. 
Many people are okay with being stuck. And that leads to this this sort of spiritual sense of of restlessness. Where am I going? What's the point of this? I'm not not any different than I was years ago. I sometimes have compared it to to speed reading. I've always been sort of interested in speed reading. There were three times when I went to the, the library, I checked out the book on speed reading, started reading it, got bored, had to return it late and pay a late fee. That's embarrassing. But finally, I got through it one time. And I had uh, this understanding, this click. You see, the, the first lesson is when you're reading to yourself, we have a tendency to kind of read out loud in our head, to say each word in your head. So you're reading and you're like, it was the best of times. It was the... Which is slow, right? You can think way faster than you can say out loud words in your head. You can think, you know, I need to go to the store, then I need to do this, then I'm going to come back home, and it's just in a second. So the idea is you just kind of flow. You don't say each word. You get out of your own head. You get out of your own way. And that's kind of the key to sanctification. If the Holy Spirit is inside of you, that means the presence of God, that frightful presence of God that was in the Holy of Holies, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, in you, And you're like, I got it. I've got willpower. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. And and many people, when they begin to say, no, I'm going to focus instead on what God is doing in me, what God has written in His Word, what Christ is accomplishing, there's a click, and they find that they are beginning to move forward. It's almost like when you first learn to ride a bike, and the key is to get some movement, and then it just sort of happens. We see... In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus telling us this sort of stuff, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize, I'm not going to stand up and go, all right, I've got everything I need. Man, we may be uh, rich globally, but spiritually we are poor. We have to acknowledge it. Blessed are those who mourn, they weep over their sins, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They don't think that they're hot stuff. They recognize that God, by His grace, is at work in them. And we're going to see this in the book of Acts in spades. It's crazy how much this takes hold. In fact, in chapter 7, a little spoiler alert if you haven't read it, in chapter 7 we see Stephen stoned to death. And there's this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who collects everyone's coats while they do it. And Stephen, while he's being killed, which is the most humiliating, painful, horrible, just offensive way to kill someone. It's an insult and injury all at once. And he... Same words, gazes intently up into heaven. And he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, he can look up. Nobody, no angels are going to yell at him. This man's work is done. He has trusted Christ, fought the good fight. And now he sees that he is being lifted up. Finally, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is one of the most common verbs used for the second coming, the return of Christ. It means to be made manifest or revealed. And when Christ is revealed, we too will be revealed for what we really are. Whether that's in the flesh or in the spirit. Whether that's someone who truly has been born again or someone who's been going through motions and going, well, I got that saved, although I'm not connected. And then we read about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this is going to be the most amazing feast. I'm very much looking forward to it. I, I think about when people are about to get married, right? Like, uh, anybody here about to get married? No? Oh, that's a shame. 
Can we make fun of him anyway? Now let's not. Let's be nice. But, but if you're about to be married, there's two ways a guy approaches this. One is, I am so excited. I'm about to get married. I'm, I'm jazzed. I can't wait. And so I am going to do everything I need to do. I'll make another version of the seating chart. Sure. I'll go and make sure this is ready. I'm going to make sure the house is ready for when you move in. I've moved stuff out of the way so that you can fit your stuff here. I'm going to paint that room you wanted me to. I'm going to do everything because I'm so excited about the coming wedding. Or there's the guy who says, ah, well, going to get married. Life's going to be over. Better live it up now. And it kind of culminates with this bachelor party night of debauchery. Uh, yeah, last chance to sow my wild oats. Uh, this guy's got no business getting married. Because he doesn't love the bride. And we are the bride in this case. And we ought to be ready. And we ought to be working for the return of our bridegroom. We ought to be thinking, oh, I want it to be so perfect when you get here. I am going to work, not because I have to, not because I have to earn your love, but because I am so excited. I'm thinking about your concerns, your interests. I'm thinking about things above, thinking about your great name, not mine. Not that I don't take time to enjoy a beautiful day in this earth, to enjoy the family God has given me, all these things Scripture commands us to do, read the book of Ecclesiastes, but rather that what motivates me in all of it is to bring glory to God. Work hard. Yes, excel in whatever you put your hand to, but do it to His glory, not to your great name. Heidelberg Catechism asks in question 58, What comfort takest thou from the doctrine of everlasting life? And the answer given is, that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man to conceive, therein to praise God forever. We do have something great to look forward to. Let it comfort you and motivate you. But don't be like those Christians in Thessalonica who said, well, Jesus is coming back and the world is wicked, so I'm going to stop working I'm going to stop serving. I'm going to just wait right here for the return of Christ. Let us be found with our boots on. Let us be found on our knees in prayer. Let us be found visiting in the hospitals or the prisons. Let us be found working hard so that we can be an example to our unbelieving co-workers. Let us be found sharing the gospel with a family member who doesn't know Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And as the book of Acts plays out, we don't see any of these disciples standing around looking up going, is it, is it time? That's what they were saying at first. Is it, is it now? Is it time? And then once the Holy Spirit filled them up, they couldn't hold it back. They were proclaiming the gospel they were feeding the hungry. They were out loving the widows and orphans. They were saying, oh, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus, stand and walk. And we see that this is what the Holy Spirit does. He sets our, mind, our minds and our eyes more and more, not on the things that this world has to offer, but on the things above. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have the example of the twelve we see in them uh, the tendencies we have to wander away, to misunderstand, to try and put the focus on ourselves. And Lord, we see how patient you were with them. We see how patient you are with us. We see that you love us. 
and You will not let us go. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to set our, our minds on things above, to seek and keep on seeking heavenly things. Your will, Your ways, Your glory. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know You that they would put their faith in You today, repent of their sins, turn from their sins, and believe in You that You died and rose again for just that. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who is saved, but they're not connected. They're, they're stuck in their sanctification and they've kind of grown okay with it. Lord, I pray Your Holy Spirit would give them a sense of disquiet, that they couldn't stand it, that Your Word would be in them locked up like fire in their bones, and they would have to, with a new zeal, begin seeking after You and recognize that all along You've been the one seeking after them. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.